Tune Review, and Speaking to the Blind, celebrating 40 years of audio newspaper production. Welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, recorded at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre by our amazing volunteers. You can get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter or Instagram using at Tune Review, that is at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. You can also contact us directly by emailing information at tunereview.com. That is I-N-F-O-R-M-A-T-I-O-N at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com or by calling 0141 772 3976. That's 0141 772 3976. This is from The National on Friday the 6th of October 2023. From the news section. Buzzing. Scottish Airport confirms new European flights. This article is written by Kirsty Fearick. Glasgow Airport has announced new European flights to two popular cities from the travel hub. Wizz Air will be taking off from the city to Budapest and Bucharest next month. The two twice-weekly routes will be launched from November the 14th and November the 17th at the popular airport. Announcing the exciting news on Instagram, Glasgow Airport said they were buzzing for the new services. The post said, Look who's touching down in Glasgow. It's Wizz Air. We're buzzing to announce two new routes twice weekly from your favourite airport. From the 14th of November, you can fly to Budapest. From the 17th of November, you can fly to Bucharest. The Glasgow Times recently reported how Turkish Airlines has named Glasgow Airport among its future connections. The airline, which serves 128 countries with 291 international destinations and 363 cargo destinations, also named Newcastle as a second new UK route. The airline's investor presentation said the national flag carrier of Turkey surpassed its 2019 capacity level by 24% in August 2023. It is unclear at this stage, however, which new routes would be linked with Glasgow. That article was written by Kirsty Fearick. This is from The National on Friday the 6th of October 2023 from the news section. Hadrian's Wall left damaged by felling of Sycamore Gap tree. This article is written by Ted Hennessy. Hadrian's Wall was damaged during the felling of a nearby world-famous tree, inspectors have found. The sycamore gap tree in Northumberland, believed to have been about 300 years old, was cut down overnight between Wednesday and Thursday last week, in what detectives have called a deliberate act of vandalism. Early signs suggest historical landmark Hadrian's Wall, which stands next to where the sycamore had been, sustained some damage, Preservation Body Historic England has said. It comes after Northumbria police arrested a man in his 60s and a 16-year-old boy in connection with the incident. Both have been released on bail. A Historic England statement read, 
We visited Sycamore Gap on Friday for a preliminary inspection. Whilst we identified that Hadrian's Wall has sustained some damage, we have not been able to access the site to carry out a full investigation. So a further archaeological appraisal will take place once the site is considered safe. As the government's heritage advisor, we are involved because Hadrian's Wall is protected as a scheduled monument. We appreciate how strongly people feel about the loss of the tree and its impact on this special historic landscape and will continue to work closely with key partners as this progresses. The wall, built by the Roman army on the orders of Emperor Hadrian, has UNESCO World Heritage status. The sycamore was looked after by Northumberland National Park Authority and the National Trust. It was among the UK's most photographed trees and was made famous in a scene from Kevin Cosner's 1991 film Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Experts have said new shoots are expected to grow from the tree, but it will never be the same again. That article was written by Ted Hennessy. This is from The National on Friday the 6th of October 2023 from the Politics section. Scottish singer Horse MacDonald condemns Suella Braverman for immigration stance. This article is written by Adam Robertson. A Scottish singer has condemned Suella Braverman for her Tory conference speech on immigration. The Home Secretary came in for criticism when she warned a hurricane of mass migration is coming as she claimed millions could seek to enter the UK. Last week, Braverman also claimed at a speech in Washington that asylum seekers pretend to be gay, to game the system and to get special treatment. Speaking on BBC's Debate Night, Scottish singer Horse MacDonald said she was worried and shocked by the language used. For me, a lot of this is about the language. It's not about facts or information. When I heard that speech... That really just worried me, she said. A lot of people act and believe these statements are based on figures and facts. There's a big difference between natural migration, illegal migration, asylum seekers, and some of the language around asylum seekers shocked me. Braverman pretty much said that people were pretending to be gay, to get access to our country. No one chooses to be gay, I can assure you. And some of the countries these people come from, they will die. They will be killed for being that. So that kind of language is abhorrent. So for me, I would like to hear figures, actual figures of the migrants. And we are lazy in this country. Some of these people will do jobs we don't care about doing. I think it's really important to welcome people who are prepared to work. Elsewhere, the SNP's deputy leader, Keith Brown, also appeared on the programme, who compared Braverman to Enoch Powell, claims which were already rejected by Grant Shapps. Describing Braverman's speech as horrendous, Brown said, I think the ability for us to continue and improve services like health and education, our economy, rely on proper migration. We had a thing a few years back called the Fresh Talent Initiative, where Scotland was given a little bit of dispensation to attract people from around the world 
who had real skills and abilities. I recently hosted a Ukrainian family for six months. They were refugees, not immigrants. I concede that point. Each one of them was desperate to work. They all had skills. Both the mother and father had skills we're desperately crying out for. We need a proper immigration policy which does encourage people to come to this country to contribute to the economy which they want to do. But the one thing we can't have is the horrendous kind of rhetoric that was used by Suella Braffman this week. That article was written by Adam Robertson. This is from The National on Friday the 6th of October 2023 from the news section. Shamed North Lanarkshire Council reverses Cuts plans. This article is written by Hamish Morrison. A Labour Council has officially reversed a package of swinging cuts to local services. It passed just a week ago after huge public outcry. Councillors in North Lanarkshire voted unanimously to stop the cuts at a meeting on Thursday afternoon. Labour Council leader Jim Logue narrowly survived a no-confidence motion over his role in the scandal, sparked by plans his councillors passed to close 39 facilities such as nurseries, libraries and leisure centres. Logue conceded defeat during a council meeting but warned the council was facing a £64 million funding black hole in the next three years. He said it's become abundantly clear from the articulated views of residents over the last few weeks that there is no appetite, if any, to disinvest in smaller local facilities to subsequently invest in larger venues. As such, the Council will now retain these facilities, but we need to fully recognise and accept that the cost of doing so will be a recurring £4.7 million at a time when revenue and capital costs are becoming increasingly limited. Sadly, reality cannot be wished away. We have £64 million of savings in the next three years to make. That, colleagues, is the stark situation of the Council's financial position. I wish I could sugarcoat this reality, but, regrettably, this would be a dishonest and flawed perspective. Tracy Carragher, the leader of the SNP group in the council, hailed the U-turn as a victory for residents and praised the thousands who had signed a petition in opposition to the plans. She said, I am happy to second this motion today on behalf of the people of North Lanarkshire. To every single adult and child who signed the petition, sent an email, took part in interviews, you should be so proud of yourself. I'll state this on record here today. The SNP group are proud to represent you. Should we have got to this stage? No, absolutely not. You've all given elected representatives of this council a big wake-up call. Every councillor in this room has had a reminder that their role is to represent you, not dictate to you. There is no doubt that lessons will have to be learned moving forward. That article was written by Hamish Morrison. 
This is from The National on Friday the 6th of October 2023. From the news section. Tory delegate urinates in plant pot in Manchester Hotel at conference. This article is written by Adam Robertson. A drunk Conservative Party delegate reportedly urinated in a plant pot at Manchester's Midland Hotel before falling and smashing it. According to the Manchester Evening News, the delegate was at the Four Star Hotel on Peter Street on Monday night after having some drinks. In the foyer of the hotel, there was an expensive pot which the delegate chose to urinate in. The newspaper reports that the aftermath was witnessed by a group of senior emergency officers who were in the vicinity carrying out a safety and risk assessment of the area around the conference centre. The delegate was not arrested and the Manchester Evening News reports that the man agreed to settle with the hotel and cover the cost of the damage. A spokesman for the Conservative Party said, It is not something we would want to comment on. The Midland has been contacted for comment. That article was written by Adam Robertson. This is from The National on Monday 9th October 2023. From the News section. Hoax caller sparks major 999 response to Glasgow Flats. By Rebecca Newlands. A hoax call sparked a huge emergency response to flats in Glasgow. Multiple 999 services raced to the block of flats at Kingsway Court in the city's Knightswood on Sunday night. Images shared on social media show the response teams at the scene with claims that four fire engines, an ambulance, a major response van and police vehicles all attended. Reports also claim that the call was a false alarm, with one local describing the move as absolutely disgusting. Another said the act was unbelievable. Officers confirmed that they had been called to the area following a report of a fire, but there was no trace of any incident when they arrived. It has been treated as a false call. The Scottish Fire and Rescue Service has been contacted. It comes after we reported that a 999 response was called to the flats at Kingsway Court last year due to a loud movie. Four police vehicles were sent following reports from a neighbour about screaming and shouting. But when officers attended the flat, the people inside were found to be watching a movie on a loud TV. That article was by Rebecca Newlands. This is from The National. On Monday, 9th October 2023. From the Politics section. Ian Murray. Labour can't rule out further use of Section 35. By Adam Robertson. A Labour MP has refused to categorically rule out blocking Scottish legislation using Section 35 should his party come to power. Shadow Scottish Secretary Ian Murray said that using Section 35 of the Scotland Act should never be a first resort in reference to the UK government's block on gender reform laws. 
The UK government prevented the Gender Recognition Reform Scotland Bill from becoming law, arguing it interfered with reserved equality laws. The move was challenged by Scottish ministers in the Court of Session, with the outcome of the challenge still being determined by Judge Lady Haldane. Speaking to BBC Radio's Good Morning Scotland programme from the Labour Conference in Liverpool, Murray was asked if he could rule out using a similar block. He said, Well, we can't categorically say that because the reason Section 35 exists in the Scotland Act, it was developed by Donald Dewar when he was First Minister, was to make sure devolution could work. And what we need to do is make sure that Section 35 is a very, very last resort and not the first resort. And that means you've got to repair relationships and work together. He told the programme his speech to conference later on Monday would address how to create a better relationship with the Scottish Government. I think the Scottish people want both governments, whatever colour they are, to work together, he said. I'm determined, if I become Scottish Secretary, to try and resolve some of these relationship problems. At least until 2026 Holyrood elections, we know we'll have an SNP government in Scotland, and we've got to try and find ways to get working together and make those intergovernmental relationships work properly. However, he also expressed confidence in his party's message ahead of next year's general election and beyond to the Holyrood elections following the by-election victory for Scottish Labour's Michael Shanks last week. The result on Thursday was just a culmination of that first stage of recovery, he told Good Morning Scotland. We're looking forward to winning every vote at every doorstep across Scotland because we feel as if we've got a real message of change to put forward to people, and they are really responding to it. That article was by Adam Robertson. This is from The National on Monday, 9th October 2023, from the Politics section. Last week alone showed need to properly vet police. By Kirsty Strickland. A review by a watchdog found not all police officers in Scotland have proper vetting records and some officers and staff have not been vetted since initial checks at the start of their careers. The review came after the murder of Sarah Everard by Wayne Cousins and the conviction of David Carrick who was found guilty of dozens of sexual offences committed while he was a serving police officer. It was then decided that there would be a nationwide check of all police officers in the UK. You only need to look at a snapshot of last week's news to see why it's more important than ever that all police forces ensure their officers are fit and proper people to be in the role. Among other things, we learnt there are currently 335 Metropolitan Police officers waiting to face gross misconduct hearings. A former 
Thames Valley officer was jailed after grooming and sexually assaulting a 13-year-old girl. A Dorset police officer, described as predatory, was jailed for 16 and a half years for raping one woman and sexually assaulting another. And an officer in Kent was jailed for six months for having an inappropriate relationship with a woman who was being investigated for a crime. Closer to home, the trial began of a Police Scotland officer accused of sexually assaulting a woman in his flat in Edinburgh. This was all just in the last week, so it's no surprise that the vetting procedure of police forces attract headlines when they're found to not work as they should. Reports of police criminality or misconduct have an impact on levels of trust in policing, regardless of where in the UK these officers are based. And once that trust is broken, it is very hard to win it back. The finding and recommendations from Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary in Scotland, or HMICS, should be viewed against this backdrop. While the overwhelming majority of police officers in Scotland are people with integrity and good intentions, any appearance of flaws in the vetting system needs to be addressed as a matter of urgency to protect the public and so that the same poor perception of the police that we see elsewhere doesn't begin to take root here. One of the findings from the report was that there is currently no easily identifiable requirement for officers to notify their superiors of any offence, charge or criminal conviction relating to something that happened while they were off duty. In this tech age, many will be astonished that this isn't already done digitally and automatically, or, if it is, that it isn't foolproof enough not to require notification from the officer who has been found to have engaged in or is accused of wrongdoing. Perhaps before this relatively recent reckoning we've seen with standards in policing and bad apple officers, it simply wasn't deemed necessary. If it wasn't then, it certainly is now. Police officers deal with some of the most vulnerable people in society on a daily basis. Their uniform elevates them above ordinary people. It signifies trust and authority. Those wearing it have to be, and be seen to be, worthy of the status it affords them. The HMICS review also found that there isn't a proper process for reviewing the vetting clearance of an officer or member of staff following an incident of misconduct, and there is no requirement to report changes to relevant circumstances, such as change of address. Responding to the findings of the review, Police Scotland Deputy Chief Constable Alan Spears said the safeguarding of the force's values and standards has never been stronger and that, overall, the report rightly highlights the high standards of our vetting. Justice Secretary Angela Constance said it is vital the public has confidence in policing. Vetting is a key strand in providing that assurance 
and we welcome the work Police Scotland is already taking to address the review's recommendations, she said. We are committed to exploring the legislative basis for vetting and are considering the report and all its recommendations. The findings of the report require small, mostly administrative remedies. This is a positive. It should be relatively simple to make the changes necessary, providing there is the political will and resources needed to do so. The review is ongoing, but any recommendations should be implemented at pace. Because, as we know, it is often women, children and vulnerable groups who pay the price for any gaps in an oversight process. And any gaps in a system in place to root out rogue actors will be exploited by the very same people that it is designed to uncover. That article was by Kirsty Strickland. This is from The National. On Monday, 9th October... 2023. From the News section. Warm Home Discount Scheme 2023. Eligibility and how to apply. By Joshua Searle. Thousands of energy customers could receive a £150 discount on their energy bills from next week. The cost of living support is available through the Warm Home Discount Scheme. The scheme for 2023 opens next week on Monday, October 16th. Eligibility and the process of applying for your payment varies depending on whether you live in Wales, England or Scotland. This is everything you need to know about the Warm Home Discount Scheme. What is the Warm Home Discount Scheme? The Warm Home Discount Scheme is a one-off discount on your electricity bill worth £150. The money is not paid to you, but is taken off your energy bills between October 2023 and March 2024. You may be able to get the discount on your gas bill instead of your electricity bill if your supplier provides you with both and you are eligible. The discount does not affect your cold weather payment of winter fuel payment. Who is eligible for Warm Home Discount Scheme? Last year, eligibility for the Warm Home Discount Scheme varied, depending on if you live in Wales or England, or if you live in Scotland. Those living in Scotland were eligible if they either received the Guarantee Credit Element of Pension Credit, known as the core group, or were on a low income and met their energy supplier's criteria for the scheme, known as the broader group. How to apply for Warm Home Discount Scheme The Warm Home Discount Scheme for this winter will open on October 16th, 2023. Last year, the process for eligible households depended on how you qualified for the discount. If you received the guarantee credit element of pension credit or were on low income in England and Wales, you were sent a letter between November and January informing you that you were eligible. Once you received your letter, you were required to confirm your details by the end of February 
and the discount was applied to your electricity bill by the end of March. Those living in Scotland who did not receive the guarantee credit element of pension credit were required to apply directly to their electricity supplier. You had to check if your energy supplier was part of the scheme, prove that you or your partner received mean-tested benefits or tax credits and show that your name or your partner's name was on the bill. That article was by Joshua Searle. From the National, Monday the 9th of October, from the comment section. Last week alone showed need to properly vet police. Column by Kirsty Strickland. A review by a watchdog found not all police officers in Scotland have proper vetting records and some officers and staff have not been vetted since initial checks at the start of their careers. The review came after the murder of Sarah Everard by Wayne Cousins and the conviction of David Carrick who was found guilty of dozens of sexual offences committed while he was a serving police officer. It was then decided that there would be a nationwide check of all police officers in the UK. You only need to look at a snapshot of last week's news to see why it's more important than ever that all police forces ensure their officers are fit and proper people to be in the role. Among other things, we learnt there are currently 335 Metropolitan Police officers waiting to face gross misconduct hearings. A former Thames Valley officer was jailed after grooming and sexually assaulting a 13-year-old girl. A Dorset police officer, described as predatory, was jailed for 16 and a half years for raping one woman and sexually assaulting another. And an officer in Kent was jailed for six months for having an inappropriate relationship with a woman who was being investigated for a crime. Closer to home, the trial began of a police Scotland officer accused of sexually assaulting a woman at his flat in Edinburgh. This was all just in the last week, so it's no surprise that the vetting procedures of police forces attract headlines when they are found not to work as they should. Reports of police criminality or misconduct have been an inevitable impact on levels of trust in policing, regardless of where in the UK those officers are based. And once that trust is broken, it is very hard to win it back. The findings and recommendations from Her Majesty's Inspector of Constabulary in Scotland, HMICS, should be viewed against this backdrop. While the overwhelming majority of police officers in Scotland are people with integrity and good intentions, any appearance of flaws in the vetting system needs to be addressed as a matter of urgency to protect the public and so that the same poor perception of the police that we see elsewhere doesn't begin to take root here. One of the findings from the report was that there is currently no easily identifiable requirement for officers to notify their superiors of any offence, charge or criminal conviction relating to something that happened while they were off duty. In this tech age, many will be astonished that this isn't already done digitally and automatically, or, if it is, that it isn't foolproof enough to require notification from the officer who has been found to have engaged in or is accused of wrongdoing. Perhaps before this relatively recent reckoning, we've seen with standards in policing and bad Apple officers, it simply wasn't deemed necessary. If it wasn't then, it certainly is now. Police officers deal with some of the most vulnerable people in society on a daily basis. Their uniform elevates them above ordinary people. It signifies trust and authority. Those wearing it have to be, and be seen to be, worthy of the status it affords them.
The HMICS review also found that there isn't proper process for reviewing the vetting clearance of an officer or member of staff following an incident of misconduct and there is no requirement to report changes to relevant circumstances such as a change of address. Responding to findings of the review, Police Scotland Deputy Chief Constable Alan Spears said the safeguarding of the forces values and standards has never been stronger and that, overall, the report rightly highlights the high standards of our vetting. Justice Secretary Angela Coynton said it is vital the public has confidence in policing. Vetting is a key strand in providing that assurance and we welcome the work Police Scotland has already taken to address the reviewer's recommendations, she said. We are committed to exploring the legislative basis for vetting and are considering the report and all its recommendations. The findings of the report require small, mostly administrative remedies. This is a positive. It should be relatively simple to make the changes necessary, providing there is the political will and resources needed to do so. The review is ongoing, but any recommendations should be implemented at pace because, as we know, it is often women, children and vulnerable groups who pay the price for any gaps in our oversight process and any gaps in a system in place to root out rogue actors will be exploited by the very same people that it's designed to uncover. And that column was by Kirsty Strickland. From the National, Monday the 9th of October, from the comment section, Scotland remains committed to the LGBT plus community. This article is by Emma Roddick. Most people understand that being LGBT plus can, in many places across the world, mean a harder life. Whether it's bullying, hate crime or persecution, all governments must take action to protect the community. In the UK, we are at a crossroads on the issue of LGBT plus rights and freedoms. We know hate crime is rising against many minorities, including the LGBT plus community. People are still seeking refuge here from what countries where their identity puts them in existential danger and practices are still ongoing that aim to convert gay people to straight, trans to cisgender. All of this makes recent comments from the Home Secretary and Prime Minister completely irresponsible. At the very time we should be working together to protect vulnerable communities, the UK government has chosen to make cruel claims about the LGBT plus asylum seekers and ignore trans people's rights. It's no surprise a Conservative London Assembly member was ejected from the party's conference last week for calling out Suella Braverman, homophobic and transphobic comments. We simply cannot stand by and let this UK government attack decades of human rights progress. The Scottish Government believes we are made stronger by embracing diversity. Among other measures to make life better for LGBT plus people, we are seeking to end conversion practices in a way that protects all of our freedoms. Conversion practices cause obvious and lasting harm, and they do not work. Whatever your opinion, or how hard you try, you simply cannot change someone's sexual orientation or gender identity. We, are, we all are who we are, and suppressing that can only lead to pain. Scotland will shortly consult on a number of measures to end these pointless and cruel practices. We have evaluated research from Scotland and around the world in developing our proposals, including the experience of other countries who have, in different ways, implemented similar bans. 
the UK government has long promised LGBTQ plus people it would take action to stop these harmful acts. Former Prime Minister Theresa May has warned her successors not to let the matter slide. It's therefore deeply disappointing to read reports that the UK government will shortly scrap plans to ban conversion practices in England. I sincerely hope the UK government will do the right thing and remain committed to this vital legislation, but I fear worse is to come. It's an area where a bit of leadership could make so much difference, and I hope it will make good in a string of promises. Despite this deeply concerning backdrop, the Scottish Government remains committed to a bill in Scotland. With the powers of our Parliament, we will not let the LGBT plus community down. But wouldn't it be better if people, no matter where they lived in the UK, could be certain of their freedom from abuse? Wouldn't it be better if our neighbours enjoyed the same freedoms as ourselves? The Scottish Government remains committed to putting an end to these indefensible acts in Scotland and the Welsh Government continues to make its own progress following an expert working group. But human rights apply to everyone and it's my hope, as a member of the community and as someone who has heard the horrific stories from survivors, that her friends in England also have protection from these tortuous acts. I say to the UK Government, do the right thing, don't let the LGBT plus community down. And that column was by Emma Roddick, MSP, who is the Minister for Equalities, Migration and Refugees. From the National, Tuesday the 10th of October, from the Culture Section, Scottish Performing Arts in Double Triumph at UK Awards, by Mark Brown. The 2023 UK Theatre Awards, held at the historic Guildhall in central London on Sunday, marked an evening of success for Scotland's performing arts. Scottish history play Enough of Him by Glasgow-based playwright Mace Sumbwam Yambi walked off with the award for Best New Play, while Scottish Ballet's innovative and reimagining of Leo Delib's copy Leah received the accolade for achievement in dance. The awards are given annually by the UK Theatre Association, an organisation established in 1894, the prizes, given by a panel of industry professionals, recognise excellence in the theatrical arts across the UK. Sumbwa Yembe's play succeeded against strong competition. Owen McCafferty's agreement, an acclaimed political drama for the lyric, Belfast, that considers the Good Friday Agreement from a humorous and personal perspective, was also nominated. The nominations in the Best New Play category were compiled by Kimberley's celebrated untitled F asterisk CK M asterisk SS S asterisk GON play the Manchester International Festival hit which satirised Western culture stereotypes of Asian people. Enough of Him is based on the true story of Joseph Knight, an African slave who was brought to Scotland by way of Jamaica who famously freed himself through the Scottish courts in the late 18th century. Set in the Perthshire mansion of the slave plantation owner Sir John Wedderburn, it is a powerful work of historical and political theatre making. Rather than write a courtroom drama, Sumbwa Nyambe created a domestic drama in which the stately home becomes a hothouse of racial, sexual and political tensions. In one particularly remarkable scene, Wedderburn, played with extraordinary emotional power and moral courage by Matthew Pidgeon, finally admits to his wife that his failure to perform his conjugal duties 
is due to the sadism of his sexual relations with black slave women in Jamaica. The play, which was co-produced by the National Theatre of Scotland and Pitlock Clary Festival Theatre, picked up three prizes in the 2023 Critics Award for Theatre in Scotland, CATS, which were held at the Traverse Theatre, Edinburgh in June. In addition to Best Production of the 2022-2023 year, the show also received gongs for Best Director, for Orla Lochin, and Best New Play. Sunborn Yambe told The National that he was delighted that his play had been recognised at the UK Theatre Awards. I was born in Edinburgh and brought up in Yorkshire, and I never got to see a play like this when I was growing up, he said. Obviously, the play's already been recognised here in Scotland, he added, referring to Enough of Him's Three Cats Awards. For it to get this recognition at the UK Theatre Awards is more than an accolade for my play. It's also recognition of all the great work that goes into theatre north of the border. The play's latest prize comes at a particularly good moment, the dramatist said, given that a tour of Scotland and England is currently being planned. Scottish Ballet's Coppelia, which transformed the famous tale of animated doll into a powerful contemplation of artificial intelligence, wowed audience at the 2022 Edinburgh International Festival. Its accolade at the UK Theatre Awards comes on top of considerable recognition at the 2023 National Dance Awards, which award dance excellence throughout the UK. At those awards, which were held at the Coronet Theatre in Notting Hill, held in London in June, Coppelia received the prizes for Best Classical Choreography for choreographers Jessica Wright and Morgan Runacre-Temple, a.k.a. Jason Morgs, and Outstanding Female Classical Performance for Constance Devernay-Lawrence as Swanhilda. Scottish Ballet also walked off with the Steph Staffanu Award for Outstanding Company. In Jessen Moore's version of the ballet, the lovable toymaker Dr Coppelius is transformed, as I observed in my review for the Sunday National, into a Zuckerbergian character who has the capacity for technological innovation that is well in advance of his moral integrity. In one voiced-over section of the ballet, we learn that he considers his company's social responsibility to extend no further than abiding reluctantly by employment law and delivering dividends to his shareholders. The imagination and ambition of the production enabled it to see off the challenge of major works at the UK Theatre Awards. Ballet Rampart were fellow nominees for their screen-to-dance adaptation Piggy Blinders, the redemption of Thomas Selby. The final nominees were Joe Fogg and George Orange for their much-loved piece The Rest of Our Lives, in which Asian cabaret artists consider their future to the prison of a creative past. It speaks volumes about Scottish Ballet's achievement that the Coppelia won out in such a illustrious company. The awards for both Enough of Him and Coppelia come at a different time for the arts in Scotland, which are still reeling from the recent re-imposition of the Scottish Government's £6.6 million cut in the budget of arts funding body, Creative Scotland. In that article, was written by Mark Brown. From the National... Tuesday the 10th of October, from the Culture Section. Scottish University Reveals Links to Slave Trade in New Report by Gregor Young. The University of Strathclyde has revealed the connections of its 18th century antecedent institution 
to the profits of slavery in a new report. The investigation found that, between 1812 and 1840, four presidents of its predecessor's governing body had been members of a group that argued in favour of slavery. It also found that the institution was gifted monies probably derived from the profits of slavery. It was unable to establish an exact sum, but donations from slavery-derived income are believed to have constituted a small but important part of the nascent institution's finances. The report was instigated by Strathclyde University's Principal and Vice-Chancellor, Professor Sir Jim MacDonald. It is published as the Institution Marks Black History Month with a series of events. Strathclyde was created in 1964, though the award of a Royal Charter to the Royal College of Science and Technology, but it traces its origins to the foundation of Anderson's Institution in 1796. This was a result of a bequest by Professor John Anderson, 1726-96, who wished to create a place of useful learning in the city following his departure from the University of Glasgow. However, Anderson left insufficient funds for the new institution and the 81 trustees named in his will were left to raise the money for it. The report found that some of these funds came from the city's merchants, much of whose wealth derived from the profits of businesses involving enslaved people in the Americas. The research, carried out by historian Professor Richard Finlay from Strathclyde's Humanities Department, identifies individuals in the university's past with links to slavery who donated money or played a significant role in the institution's governance. These include four past presidents who were members of the Glasgow West India Association, a group that lobbied in favour of slavery before the Slavery Abolition Act 1833. Several other presidents and trustees had indirect links with the slave trade through their professions, business activities, relatives or associates. While there is no evidence that the management of Anderson's institution promoted pro-slavery sentiments, neither did it promote anti-slavery petitions. However, the report found circumstantial evidence to make the case that Anderson would likely have been in favour of the abolition of the slave trade by the 1790s, based on his religious views, subscription to anti-slavery publications and associations with those in favour of abolishment. Report author Finlay said, Anderson's institution was founded in a city that was still sucking in the profits from slavery. Given the omnipresent nature of the engagement with the slaving economies of the Americas and Glaswegian society in the late 18th and the early 19th centuries, many of the hundreds of individuals who served as trustees of the institution will have had some kind of casual acquaintance with or participation in business connected to slavery. In response to the findings of the report, the university said that strengthening continued commitment to advancing race equality for students and staff and will maintain and expand its investment and work with further racial equality and raise its awareness of the legacy of slavery in the city of Glasgow. MacDonald said, This important report has revealed that in our early history, our antecedent institution was a beneficiary of money that was derived from business profits involving slavery and that some of its governors, trustees and donors were enablers, supporters and profiteers of slavery. It is only right that we acknowledge this uncomfortable truth and recognise and accept that much of our city and our nation's history and prosperity has been built through the exploitation of other peoples, and this is deeply regrettable. We should use this knowledge of our own history to inform our actions and tackle injustice today. Between 2020-2022, the University's Race Equality Working Group 
held a number of engagement sessions with BMME staff and students, which has led to race equality work being prioritised within the university. In response to the report, the university will continue to invest in work which furthers racial equality and which raises awareness of the legacy of slavery in the city of Glasgow. Eva Curran, President of Strathclyde Student Union, said The impacts of colonialism continue to reverberate through generations. By discussing the feelings of the past, we can create a better future. The student executive team and I look forward to continuing our partnership with the university, keeping black students and the wider student community engaged in our work. And that article was by Gregor Young. The National News on Wednesday the 11th of October. NHS apologises after three patients die and a Glasgow doctor is suspended. This is an article written by Lauren Brownlee. A doctor working in Greater Glasgow was suspended by the NHS after it was found that they were not following up with patients, three of whom went on to die. In 2022, it was discovered that a very small number of patients had not received the appropriate follow-up care after having had a colonoscopy performed by the doctor. This instigated a comprehensive look-back exercise of 2,700 patients between 2020 and 2022. A clinical review completed last month identified six patients who suffered harm among the patients who were not followed up appropriately. Sadly, three of the patients died. The doctor, who has not been named, was suspended in November 2022 and has since left the employment of NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde. It was not revealed where they worked. However, the Health Board covers the council areas of Glasgow, East Renfrewshire, Renfrewshire, Western Bartonshire, Eastern Bartonshire and Inverclyde. Professor Colin Mackay, Deputy Medical Director for the NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde Health Board, said We would like to offer our sincere apologies to patients who were not followed up appropriately and our condolences to the families of those patients who have died. When errors were first discovered, an immediate, comprehensive review was carried out of all cases managed by the doctor since 2020. Our investigations found that the doctor did not consistently follow up the results of investigations that had been completed or requested, and therefore missed the opportunity for patients to be treated, including a number of patients who went on to develop malignancy. We would like to reassure patients that we have already contacted all those patients affected, and that no other patients should be concerned that they may be involved. We will ensure that recommendations and any other learning from our review will be shared with other health boards. The health board informed the General Medical Council of its investigations when the issues were first identified and has continued to update on the progress of its review and the findings. It was revealed that the vast majority of colonoscopies performed by the doctor were for patients in the bowel screening programme. The review covered the period from January 2020, as there was review evidence of appropriate follow-up prior to then. However, a contact number for patients has been set up for anyone who may have concerns or questions. That number is 0141 451 5435. 0141 451 5435. And it's staff between 8am and 8pm from Monday to Sunday. That was an article written by Lauren Brownlee.
The National, on Wednesday, the 11th of October. Opinion. Scottish voters want policies to deliver for the next generation. A column written by Kate Forbes. It's been almost a week since the Rutherglen and Hamilton West by-election, and there's been a stream of comment, prediction and headline. I'm not going to add to it. Instead, I want to focus on what comes next. The First Minister quickly promised to reflect, reorganise and regroup, which is important. We, and by we I mean the SNP, need to genuinely reflect on how voters feel, accept constructive criticisms level at us by sympathetic voters and focus on how we can better deliver for them. Because the SNP has, time and time again in the last 16 years, done exactly that. As the Scottish National Party, our strength is our willingness to listen to voters, adapt and deliver for them. To stand up for Scotland means to stand up for all of Scotland. It means to show compassion for the plight of families, households and businesses who are currently grappling with the impossibility of making ends meet and keeping the show on the road. Then we need to reorganise, considering how to maximise our resources, inject buoyancy and enthusiasm into our campaign and inspire hope and confidence at a really challenging time for people. Our strength here is our members. Later this week we will meet at conference, renew friendships and debate the state of the world over a free fringe sandwich. The SNP isn't an entity independent of its members, it is its members. That includes every member. In the last few weeks I've heard members of the SNP talk about the SNP and I've reminded them that they are the SNP. But lastly we need to regroup. History reveals time and time again that disunited parties lose the confidence of voters. Internal squabbling doesn't endear voters to us. That isn't an argument to shut down debate and reflection. In fact, to reflect requires an in-depth MOT, with plenty of open and honest discussion, starting at conference. There will be disagreements. In fact, there must be disagreement for a proper debate to take place. Shouting down or penalising constructive disagreement is counterproductive, especially if those words come from a place of care and concern for our country and our party. But then, after conference, we must unite behind a winning plan and proposition. The key word here is winning. To that end, we can learn a lot from the last 16 years of power. I often reflect that our greatest successes are those which planned for the longer term – when we started to lay the groundwork for a better nation. That requires ambition and careful planning. But I strongly believe that the people of Scotland are attracted to initiatives that will deliver for the next generation. So often we hear politicians criticised for introducing policies that are time-bound by the next election. Few will plan for the long term, because they want quick results. We know that real change will only be realised decades after investment and reform. In fact, it's somewhat remarkable to see the Conservatives claim to be making long-term decisions when the opposite is true. The last decade and a half have been tumultuous, to say the least. The 2008 financial crash happened, followed by years of austerity. The independence referendum was followed by the Brexit referendum. Covid struck and we're now living through a cost-of-living crisis. 
In that time, there have been a number of investments which I believe will continue to reap rewards for Scotland's people in the years ahead. We expanded free childcare to 1140 hours, which currently saves families around £4,500 per child per year. That isn't a one-off policy, it's one which will reap benefits for generations to come. We built a new social security system, largely from scratch, based on principles of dignity and respect. People in need now receive much more support in a more humane way than if this hadn't happened. We delivered 118,000 affordable homes, significantly increasing the supply of warm, affordable housing. We expanded free bus travel across the country, meaning that pupils and students can travel anywhere for minimal cost, increasing the use of public transport. We built a bank, the Scottish National Investment Bank. We've pioneered initiatives like minimum alcohol unit pricing and now drug consumption rooms. But if we're to continue to win elections, govern Scotland and show the world why Scotland should be independent, then we need an equally radical prospectus for the next 16 years. That prospectus must be built from the ground up. It must be informed by the grassroots, shaped by the party and appealing to all of our citizens. It must be radical but realistic, popular but pragmatic, inspiring but relevant. None of the current cohort of politicians might see the results, but the next generation will. And remember, good, competent government is part of the route map for independence. We face twin crises of depopulation and climate change. Our focus should be on policies that support people to live, work and to raise a family, while also meeting our net zero commitments. There are so many policy areas that allow us to do both – Commonweal has presented policy proposals as part of a Green New Deal for Scotland. In the first sentence, it highlights the environmental crises and enduring social failures of poverty and inequality. Both should be our northern star. The compass on every policy must swing north. For example, we should focus on eradicating fuel poverty while simultaneously shifting away from fossil fuel consumption. In that order... Doing it the opposite way round might help us to get to net zero, but only at the cost of poor families. There are some things we can't control, like the energy market, but we should invest in the supply chain for renewables, with a laser-like focus on attracting new businesses to Scotland and ensuring that there is a steady stream of new skilled workers to meet the need and work with energy companies to transition away from oil and gas in that order. Doing it the other way round risks thousands of jobs and jeopardises the Scottish economy. We should identify a few ambitious infrastructure projects and pour our capital budget into those. It will mean that other, smaller projects might not proceed, but it will be easy to identify the successful initiatives. The Queensferry Crossing stands tall as a testament to the SNP's ambition. We need to see the same again, perhaps in the form of fixed links to our islands or a fully electrified rail system, or completing the promised duelling of the A9 and the A96. The total capital budget of £5 billion per annum doesn't go very far, 
but over a few years of focusing on a few massive projects, there will be no doubt as to the SNP's ambition and focus on the future. As an SNP member like any other, those are just my suggestions to deliver for people and planet. Others will disagree, but let's have a brilliant debate that focuses on the priorities of our people, demonstrates our compassion and care, and helps us make the case for independence. A column written by Kate Forbes, who is the MSP for Sky, Lochaba and Bedenach. The National, on Wednesday, the 11th of October. Opinion. What Scottish Labour's appeal to yes voters really told us. The Real Scottish Politics, a column written by the Wee Ginger Doug. More proof that Labour's promise of change is meaningless came just a few hours before Sir Keir Starmer took to the podium to share his platitudes with us on the final day of the Labour conference. Taking the stage, National Campaign Coordinator Pat McFadden confirmed that a future Labour government will not implement a resolution put forward by the Unite Union and passed by delegates to nationalise the energy companies. Mick Lynch, General Secretary of the RMT Union, told a fringe meeting at the conference in Liverpool that taking the railways back under public control remains party policy and urged the party not to backslide on this commitment. But judging from Mr Starmer's willingness to ditch every other policy that seems vaguely left-wing, it's more likely than not that it will go the same way as the one to renationalise the energy companies. On Monday, Anna Sawa, the leader of the Labour Party's Scottish optional identity mark, had his turn at addressing the conference. In between the predictable crowing and triumphalism on the back of Labour's win in the Rutherglen and Hamilton West by-election, he spared a few moments to assure us that he would not close his arms to yes supporters in Scotland. He might not close his arms to them, but he's already closed his ears and his mind. Moreover, along with his boss, Mr Sawa is still opposed to another independence referendum and is still refusing to specify exactly how the people of Scotland can express their desire for another vote through the ballot box. Labour refuses to accept that desire was expressed when parties standing on an explicit and unarguable commitment to another referendum won a majority of seats in Holyrood during an election which was dominated by the issue. Mr Sawa has spent the two years since May 2021 denying that the Scottish Government has a mandate for a referendum. Shortly before the Labour Party conference began, during a campaign visit to Rutherglen and Hamilton West, Labour's Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves categorically denied that it would constitute a mandate for another independence referendum if the SNP was to win the next Westminster general election in Scotland. So if it's not winning a Holyrood election and it's not winning a Westminster general election in Scotland, then what is it exactly? Mr Sawa can't say because the answer to that question is way above his pay grade. But he certainly does not appear to have any great interest in pressuring his boss to answer it either. This renders democracy in Scotland effectively meaningless on the crucial question of the Constitution – as meaningless as Mr Sawa telling us that his arms are open to independent supporters. By that he means that he's happy for yes voters to support him, but he has absolutely no intention of reciprocating. He's telling independent supporters, just set aside your aspirations and support me. 
Mr Sawa does this before every election, but as soon as the votes are counted, even when Labour has lost, as it did in May 2021, he insists that it proves that people in Scotland have rejected independence. In his speech, Mr Sawa claimed that the voters of Rutherglen and Hamilton West, or at least the 37.2% of them who could be bothered to vote, spoke for Scotland by returning a single MP, bringing Labour's total to two. However, all those voters who returned the great majority of Scotland's MPs, specifically the 44 SNP MPs and the two ALBA MPs who support independence and the right of the people of Scotland to another referendum, apparently do not speak for Scotland. I'm not entirely sure how that works, but I'm sure that BBC Scotland will not be pressing him to explain the Labour Party special arithmetic that makes two a bigger number than 46. In return for votes, Labour offers independent supporters a brief respite from Conservative rule, but not from Conservative policies. There will be no independence referendum, no return to the single market and customs union, far less the EU, no meaningful reform of the House of Lords and no measures to protect the devolution settlement. Mr Sawa said he wanted more powers devolved to Scotland, but conspicuously omitted to specify any. He did, however, suggest a possible extension of English-style elected mayors to Scotland, a clear indication that a Labour government will continue the Conservative assault on the powers of the Scottish Parliament. Local government in Scotland is devolved. Labour and the Tories are both keen to bypass Holyrood, where they cannot form a government, in favour of local authorities where they can establish a power base. This is not and has never been about what the Labour Party can do for Scotland. It's about what Scotland can do for the Labour Party. Labour's years in the electoral wilderness in Scotland have taught it nothing. A column written by the Wee Ginger Doug. The National Politics on Wednesday, the 11th of October. Passionate anti-poverty campaigner seeks to replace Mary Black. An article written by Steph Braun. A councillor seeking to succeed Mary Black as an MP has said she wants to address poverty and disadvantage wherever I find it. Jacqueline Cameron, who is currently the deputy leader of Renfrewshire Council, has put her name forward to replace Mary Black and be the SNP candidate in Paisley and Renfrewshire South for the forthcoming general election. Describing herself as a passionate anti-poverty campaigner, Ms Cameron, who has been a councillor since 2017, said she wanted to fight for the needs of communities and was determined to add her name to a growing list of female SNP MPs. Ms Black announced earlier this year that she would vacate the seat, calling Westminster a toxic environment. Ms Black's staffer, Robert Innes, who is a councillor in Linwood, also announced that he was seeking nomination last week. Ms Cameron, who lives in the Renfrewshire village of Kilbachan, told The National, I was delighted to be approved as a potential candidate and am seeking the honour of representing the area in which I live. I intend to fight for the needs of our communities with great local knowledge, experience and a deep passion to address poverty and disadvantage wherever I find it. I respect the decision of Mary Black to stand down and share her disgust at how the Tories have ignored the needs of our communities.
We need that continued strong voice for Paisley and Renfrewshire South, and that's why, after being encouraged by others to stand, I have put my name forward for SNP members to consider. The SNP has made great progress in getting female MPs elected, and I look forward to adding to their ranks. But I wouldn't intend to go to Westminster to settle down. In the words of our dear departed SNP legend Winnie Ewing, I wouldn't be going to settle down, but to settle up, and to secure our independence. The immediate priority is the cost of living crisis, and I would offer a real alternative to Labour's imitation of the Tories. Miss Cameron insisted she intended to expose Labour's hypocrisy, despite the party talking up its chances of winning the seat. Miss Black ousted Labour's Douglas Alexander in 2015, when she was just 20, and still a student. Miss Cameron became the first female SNP deputy leader in Renfrewshire Council last year and has been appointed to chair the Fairer Renfrewshire Subcommittee, which is a council-led body aiming to make Renfrewshire a fairer place to live, work and study. Ballots for selecting a candidate for the seat will open on Thursday. That was an article written by Steph Braun. The National News on Wednesday the 11th of October. Scottish University faces criticism for graduation ticket fee plans. This is an article written by Adam Robertson. A Scottish university is facing questions over plans to bring in ticket charges for families attending student graduation ceremonies. Graduates at the University of Aberdeen previously received two free tickets for family or friends, but they will now be charged £13.20 per ticket. The university said it was unable to continue funding the cost of the ceremonies, which are being held next month at Aberdeen's P&J Live Arena. However, student leaders have said families struggling financially could miss out on the experience. The Aberdeen University Students' Association has called for a meeting with university bosses over the charges. Association President Vanessa Mabonzo Nzolo said they had not been consulted. She said... We want to know what possible concessions there are for students' families. The university's slogan is open to all, and that's something we are championing. We're trying to make sure that all our students have access to everything and the student experience is equal. With these changes to the tickets, more expenses are piling up on graduations and that is really turning away from the value of education being open for all. Previous graduation fees were scrapped by the university in 2019. Prior to this, students had to pay an administration fee of £45 to graduate in person and £10 if they did not attend the ceremony. In a statement, the University of Aberdeen said, As the size of our ceremonies have grown, that challenge of delivering an event fitting to the achievements of our students and to offer a space where they can celebrate in style has also grown. Unfortunately, like many others in the sector, we are unable to absorb all the costs of graduation celebrations on an ongoing basis. Glasgow, Edinburgh, St Andrews and Stirling universities have confirmed they all continue to offer two free tickets for guests. Aberdeen University said it was committed to ensure graduating students did not have to pay a fee. It said carers and children under two would still get free tickets. An article written by Adam Robertson. The National News 
on Wednesday, the 11th of October. Transport Minister opens upgraded island ferry terminal. An article issued by the National News Desk. Transport Minister Fiona Hislop visited Harris to officially open the multi-million pound Tarbert Ferry Terminal project led by Caledonian Maritime Assets Limited, or CMAL. Ms Hislop toured the facilities with CMAL Chief Executive Kevin Hobbs before speaking at a short ceremony and unveiling a plaque at the front of the new terminal building. The harbour redevelopment was completed earlier this year and has provided passengers with a new pier, fendering system and larger marshalling area. Work was completed while the Lifeline ferry terminal remained operational, causing minimal disruption. The development also saw local building firm Lewis Builders of Stornoway win the contract to construct the new terminal building, which benefits from more seating for passengers. The Transport Minister said, I'm really pleased to have been able to visit and formally open these upgraded facilities at Tarbert Ferry Terminal. I can already see that the new terminal building is popular with passengers and staff and the new marine infrastructure is bringing benefits through increased marshalling areas and enhanced berthing facilities that will allow larger vessels to dock. I'd like to thank all the partners involved in delivering this upgrade for their hard work and to congratulate them on the project winning a Scottish Civil Engineering Marine Infrastructure Award. The harbour will be home to one of two vessels under construction at a shipyard in Turkey. The two 94.8-metre vehicle and passenger ferries will replace the one vessel that currently covers the two Little Minch routes, that is Uig to Lochmadi and Uig to Tarbert. Mr Hobbs said the terminal is now a much more comfortable place for passengers awaiting the ferry and Tarbert Harbour is well prepared for the new ferry due to arrive in 2025. An article issued by The National's News Desk. This is from The National on Thursday 12th October 2023 from the Culture Section. Smashed Monument at Scottish Castle raises questions for developers. By Xander Elliards. The US firm developing Taymouth Castle into an exclusive resort is facing questions after a listed monument on the grounds of the estate was smashed. The monument, a stone urn thought to date from the 1700s, was photographed in pieces in an image obtained by the Protect Loch Tay campaign group and dated October 2022. A second image dated July 2022 shows the urn intact. It is unclear exactly when the damage happened. Historic Environment Scotland has the urn as a Grade B listed monument. Its website states... The monument, listed Category B, is an urn on a square pedestal and is thought to date from the 18th century. It is marked on the first edition OS of 1862. An Ordnance Survey map on the National Libraries of Scotland website, surveyed in 1862 and first printed in 1867, shows the monument just south of the River Tay, north of the Dairy on the Taymouth Castle estate. 
Discovery Land Company, DLC, the firm behind the renovation of Taymouth Castle and various other local properties into a resort aimed at the mega-rich, did not respond to the Nationals' requests for comment. Perth and Kinross Council said it was aware of the damage to the monument and that DLC had indicated that the listed structure was subject to suspected vandalism. DLC did not respond to requests for details about when the suspected vandalism was noticed or if it was reported to the police. Police Scotland said they could not check their system for a report of vandalism without knowing more specifics about the dates. HES said it had recently been made aware of the damage, but that any investigation was primarily for the council. Perth and Kinross Heritage Trust, a charity which conserves the region's historic environment, confirmed the damage to the urn had not been reported to them. The Trust added, We are content that the matter has been dealt with by HES and conservation and planning officers at PKC through the planning process. A spokesperson from the Protect Loch Tay group said, The damage to this historic artefact is so very disappointing. We have been informed that DLC believe it may have been vandalised. If this is the case, it is very disturbing in a small community where crimes of this nature are virtually unheard of. What is more surprising is that even with DLC's high levels of security, they were unable to protect this historic monument. When were DLC first aware of this destruction? Why do they suspect vandalism? Did they immediately report it to the police, considering it to be a serious crime? If they did so, when was it reported? Do they have CCTV footage of what took place? If DLC were sincere in previous statements about protecting the castle and grounds and how much Scotland's heritage means to them, they must make it a priority to find out what took place and provide answers to the above questions. A PKC spokesperson said, The planning authority is aware of the damage to the monument. The developer indicated that the listed structure was subject to suspected vandalism and had to be removed from the site to enable repairs. It is currently safely stored in a container on the site, pending survey and repair works. Perth and Kinross Council remains in dialogue with the developer's agent regarding this to ensure all correct permissions are in place for this. A spokesperson for HES said, We recently received reports of this incident and have ensured the relevant planning officers in Perth and Kinross Council are aware. We understand they are assessing the situation as unauthorised works to a listed structure are primarily investigated by the planning authority while we are on hand to advise. The news comes after the National reported that DLC has breached planning rules in its Taymouth Castle development. Satellite images showed that work on a foul water treatment plan with drainage into the River Tay had begun, despite concerns being raised by the Scottish Government's Environment Agency, Nature Scott, and no permission having yet been granted. 
DLC currently owns Taymouth Castle Estate, the neighbouring Glenlyon Estate, Moness Resort, Kenmore Hotel, Kenmore Post Office and Shop, Taymouth Trading, Bray Cottages, Amphasgath and Gatehouse, Paper Boat, Police House and the Boat House Cottages, among other properties. They also operate some 35 other exclusive resorts across the world where law breaches have been reported and deep concerns raised about the environmental impact. That article was by Xander Elliards. This is from The National. On Thursday, 12th October 2023. From the comment section. Labour's naked nationalism shown by more than UK flags. By the wee Ginger Doug. The Labour Party conference in Liverpool came to its conclusion yesterday with a keynote speech by Keir Anasarwar says what I say, Starmer. The most exciting part of the speech came when a protester rushed on stage and showered Starmer with glitter, which is guaranteed to be the only time you will ever see the man sparkle. As a protest, the stunt failed dismally, and not only because it remains unclear what the glitter bomber was actually protesting about. It also failed because an effective protest should make its target appear ridiculous. This protest merely bestowed the grey man of British politics with a fabulosity which he in no way deserves. The protester identified later as Yaz Ashmawi of a small group calling itself People Demand Democracy barged onto the stage just as Starmer was about to start speaking and yelled, We demand a people's house. We are in crisis. Politics needs an update. We are in crisis. All of which is true, but what is a people's house exactly? And how does it differ, if indeed it does differ, from an elected parliament? According to its website, People Demand Democracy seeks to abolish the House of Lords and replace it with what the group calls a Permanent Citizens' Assembly, whose members would be ordinary citizens selected at random by a lottery system, rather like being called up for jury duty. The problem with this idea is that it crucially depends on citizens being informed by a fact-based and unbiased media. That is very far from the case with the British media, which has a strong right-wing bias, whereas social media is all too often a hellscape of conspiracy theories. The abolition of the House of Lords might be a good start, but we all know this was one of Starmer's many U-turns. Starmer quickly dropped any suggestion of abolition or even meaningful reform of the House of Lords within a week or two of the publication of Gordon Brown's decidedly underwhelming constitutional review. Reform of the unfair voting system for elections to the House of Commons and the implementation of measures to bring that sclerotic and dysfunctional institution into the 21st century was never on Starmer's radar to begin with. This brings us to the second lesson for any effective protest. 
it should always be clear exactly what the protester wants to achieve. You might not agree with the tactics of the Just Stop Oil campaign, but it is crystal clear what the group wants to achieve. Starmer devoted several minutes in his speech to Scotland, mostly boosterish triumphalism on the back of the optional identity marks victory in last week's Rutherglen and Hamilton West by-election. We were regaled with the sight of Starmer standing in front of a massive British flag in a conference hall bedecked with more British flags than an Orange Lodge's coronation party, insisting that the Labour Party had defeated nationalism. The SNP will realise nationalism doesn't work, Starmer asserted as he stood in front of the biggest display of nationalism that the party conference has season has seen. The irony is off the charts. The new Labour Party membership card has a British flag on one side and a call to put country first on the other. It's a membership card which is functionally identical to that of Britain first. But the Labour Party is a Opposed to nationalism, allegedly. It is a frankly delusional stance. You don't get to claim that you're opposed to nationalism while you wrap yourself up in flags and tell Sky News that you understand the soul of the British people. British nationalism is pathological, incapable of recognising itself for what it is. What is the soul of the British people if not an overtly nationalist turn of phrase? It assumes that there is such a thing as a single British people with a unitary identity. It subsumes those of the different nations which comprise the British state and says that this Britishness is a quasi-religious entity which possesses a soul. This is nakedly nationalist and reactionary language. Starmer's speeches on Scotland essentially copy the old negativity of the last Labour government, which refuses to look at why so many people in Scotland are attracted to the idea of independence, blaming it all on nationalists stoking division. It's a grossly simplistic and reductionist approach which does not engage with the real drivers of the desire for independence among so many in Scotland. It also conveniently absolves the Labour Party from the need for any introspection or change. Starmer (coughs) reduces a complex and nuanced issue about the future of Scotland, a topic on which many people are either undecided or open to persuasion, to trite platitudes about nationalism. This is not how to persuade soft yes supporters that you really understand their concerns. The Labour Party is reaping the benefit of recent turmoil within the SNP and widespread desperation in Scotland to see the back of the hated Conservative government. But the SNP's problems will not last forever. And the promises of Labour will soon crumble once the party takes power at Westminster, revealing a party 
which has learned nothing. Any Labour revival will be short-lived. Its Labour brand of Anglo-British nationalism, which will not work. We are currently witnessing is not so much a fresh breath for the party as a death rattle. This will be Labour's last gasp in Scotland. The great error Labour is making is to assume that the desire for independence is a creature of the SNP. So all they need to do is defeat the SNP and the whole issue goes away. But it's the other way round. The SNP is a creature of the desire for independence. Since Labour is unable and unwilling to address the root causes of that desire, it will inevitably reassert itself. That article was by The Wee Ginger Dog. That concludes this week's edition of the National Podcast. Please remember to subscribe to our channels at Tune Review and tell your friends about our service. 